Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is an interpolated episode of the podcast Walking with Dante, a review of Inferno, sort of. Remember in the last passage that we came out of, Canto 34 of Inferno, lines 1 through 27, it ended with a direct address to the reader. Did you know there are seven direct addresses to the reader in Inferno? Wait a minute, get this. And that there are seven in Purgatorio. And wait a minute, get this, that there are seven in Paradiso. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure enough, you have found yourself a poet who loves structure. What is seven? The seven days of creation, perfection, the creative order, artistry. God is the ultimate artist. What is seven? Oh, it's artistic perfection. Seven addresses to the reader in Inferno, seven in Purgatorio, and seven in Paradiso. So sit back. We're going to look at the seven direct addresses to the reader in Inferno because we have passed the last one. What can they tell us about Dante the Poet? That seems a really important question. And before we get to the passages themselves, let me just talk you through that. When a writer turns away from her or his text and directly addresses me, addresses me straight on, then you know that the writer is trying to curb my expectations, to channel my interpretations, and you also know the writer is imagining me. Who does Dante imagine is reading his poem? Maybe by looking at the seven direct addresses to the reader, we can answer this question. Now, I assure you, Dante does not think somebody in 2022 on a podcast is reading comedy. But who does he think is reading it? And what advice does he have for them? The first time Dante directly addresses us is in Canto 8, lines 94 through 96. We have come over a break. This seems important. Remember, there may be a break in Inferno, and we may come up to the River Styx. The poem may break back up a bit, start again. And we talked about changed directions. We talked about how we were popping down through the seven deadly sins. And then all of a sudden the poem stops. We get to this whole scene in front of the walls of Dis with Medusa threatened to come out at us, with Virgil being called away from Dante and being tormented by the demons in front of the city called Dis. And right there, the poet seems to want to address us directly. So let me back up and just read you. This is my translation of Dante's Inferno from the Medieval Florentine. Let me just read you where we are. They all checked their disdain a bit. That is, all these demonic, furious thousands standing in front of the walls of Dis and said, you, Virgil, come by yourself and send that guy away. In other words, they're saying, Virgil, come over here and get rid of that pilgrim. I mean, what is he doing here? The one who came into this realm so boldly. Let him go back along his foolish path. See if he knows how, for you'll remain here. You who escorted him through this gloomy country. The threat is they're going to keep Virgil. They're not even going to let him go back to limbo. Our poor pilgrim Dante is going to have to walk all the way back up and out the gate of 
<laughs> and I guess into that dark wood with those three bees. Dante then steps out and addresses us. Think, reader, how I got weak in the knees at the sound of those cursed words. I believed I'd never make it back from there. After the break in Inferno and possibly the restart of the poem, now the poet directly addresses us. And what he seems to want is that we understand his emotional state. Think, reader, how I got weak in the knees at the sound of those cursed words. I believed I'd never make it back from there. The writer is interested in our understanding what's at stake. And what's at stake here is not writing a good poem, but life or death. Veracity of the journey is indicated here. This really happened. Something was really at stake. Me. I could die. And also, the intimacy developed in this first address with the reader. Dante the poet believes, A, that he wants me emotionally attuned with him. B, he wants me to understand that there is a great deal at stake here. Not just intellectual fun and games, but life and death. And C, he wants me to understand that he and I are intimate on some level. I'm going to tell you how I really felt. And I'm going to tell you my inner states. It's as if I called you over here and quietly whispered something in your ear about, oh, God, listen, this is the truth about what I felt. The poet believes that the best reader he can find is emotionally invested, feels an intimacy with him, and understands that there is a great deal at stake here besides poetics. The second time that the poet directly addresses us is just a little bit thereafter. I'm at Canto 9, and I'm at line 61 through 63. This is the moment in which they're calling out uh, Medusa to come out and essentially turn our pilgrim to stone. The Furies are standing up on top of the walls of Dis, and Virgil points them out. He names them. There's Megara. There's Electo. There's Tisiphone. There they rake their breasts with their fingernails, beat them with their hands, shrieked. I out of fear. I pressed close to Virgil. Let Medusa come, those furies say, and then we'll turn him to stone. We didn't do right when it came to avenging Theseus's attack. Turn around, Virgil says to our pilgrim, and keep your eyes closed. If the Gorgon shows herself, if Medusa shows herself, and you see her, you won't get back to the world above. Notice the threat level still, the life and death threat. Our pilgrim could be turned to stone, really? In this divinely sanctioned journey, Really? Our pilgrim could be turned to stone. As my investor said this, he took hold of me, spun me around, and not trusting my own hands, put his over my eyes. And now here comes the direct address, line 61 through 63 of Canto 9. Oh, you who are of healthy intellects, look well at the teaching that hides itself underneath the veil of these strange verses. This direct appeal to the reader is not about emotional landscapes or intimacy. This is about interpretation. The writer is interested in my being an active participant in the interpretation of his poem. 
does that mean that the poem is open-ended? No, it does not. It doesn't mean that anything's possible here. But what it means is that the writer wants me to understand that if I'm going to read this poem that he's writing, I have got to do more than sit back in my chair and be fed it. I've got to sit up. I've got to pay attention and I've got to figure out what in the world is he trying to tell me. Our poet believes the reader must be active, actively involved in interpreting the poem. Now, let me back up. And I think I've said this in this podcast before, but let me back up and say this to you. I used to have an old thing I'd say when I was an academic and taught, and I'm going to do it again because it's just really important to say here when we talk about interpretation. You know, as an English teacher, you're ultimately always faced with this thing of a student who says, well, can a poem really just mean anything? Don't you just make up anything and it means anything? And the answer to that is clearly no. And here's what I would do. I would show them an Emily Dickinson poem. I would read it to them. At the end of the poem, I would say, does this poem advocate, does this urge me to buy a certain kind of vacuum cleaner? Well, of course, it does not. It's an Emily Dickinson poem. It doesn't urge me to buy any vacuum cleaner in any brand of house cleaning product. But that means by saying, no, it does not, that means I lined one thing out. That means that the poem can't mean anything. I've automatically lined out one interpretation. Oh, Electrolux vacuum cleaners are the best. Nope. The poem can't mean that. So it can't mean anything which means it must mean something, which means there could be a range of meanings, but they have to be formed inside the text itself. And the text itself must limit that range because Electrolux vacuum cleaners are mentioned nowhere (laughs) in Emily Dickinson's poetry. Same here. The poet is essentially saying to us, pay attention to the verses and look inside the poem. Don't go floating out above the poem. Don't go floating beyond the poem. Look in the poem. So the poet is asking for an active but limited reader, a reader who will limit herself or himself to the text on the page. The next time the poet directly steps out and addresses us is in Canto 16. This is at the call of Garion. Remember that the pilgrim has a cord we find out around his waist. He had meant perhaps to catch the leopard with this cord. He never did. And now Virgil takes it and tosses one end of it over the edge of the cliff to call for Garion. Remember this whole bit? It starts at about line 106 of Canto 16. Let me read you some of these lines leading up to the direct address. I said to myself, for sure something new will respond to this weird signal that my master traces with his eyes. Wow, we should be really careful with those who not only see everything we do, but can also make sense out of our thoughts. Because Virgil said to me, We'll soon come into view, this thing I anticipated and that you try so hard to imagine. Soon it's going to be right in front of your face. When it comes to the truth of something that has the surface features of a lie, a guy should keep his mouth shut, if at all possible, for can bring him disgrace through no fault of his own. But I can't keep quiet. By the very scribblings of this comedy, reader, I swear to you, and 
boy, do I hope they bring me favor, that I saw right in the thick and murky air a figure swimming up that would make the most confident hearts marvel. The poet knows he's stretching the limits of credulity. He is stretching or daring the very limits of the possible inside this poem. And so the poet turns and winks at us and says, I swear on my own book, comedy that I really saw Garion float up through the air. Okay, two things. One, the poet is asking me as the reader to be actively involved in the imaginative landscape of the poetry itself. And two, the poet is telling me, look, I know that I'm pushing it, but hey, come along with me and watch me push it. The poet then is asking for leeway from his reader. In other words, to put it in another way, the poet is asking for a generous reader. What are we seeing? The poet is asking for an interpretively active reader. The poet is asking for a reader who's emotionally engaged with the poetry. And the poet is looking for a generous reader who will grant him some space for his imaginative vision. So much so that he's willing to risk the very nature of the work he's writing, comedy, and so much so that he's willing to wink at me and say, <laughs> I swear on comedy, I really did see this thing come up. Do you think Garion really came up? Of course not. The reader is also being asked to enter the ironic space of the poem. This is the reader Dante wants, a reader who understands the challenges of irony and is willing to follow the poet down that hole. Fourth address to the reader in Inferno. It's in Canto 20. We're now in the Malibolgia, and we're with the fortune tellers. I remember they're coming along with their heads turned backwards on their bodies, or they're coming along face forward with their bodies turned backwards. We talked about that actual problem when we got to the passage itself. Whichever way they're doing, there's something wrong with their heads and their bodies. They're going different ways. Okay, fine enough. So their faces were twisted, it says at the front of Canto 20. They're twisted around to the back so that they were forced to go along backwards since they were denied the sight of what's ahead. It could be that sometimes a guy with palsy knots himself up all over like this, but I haven't seen it nor even believe it's possible. So that God may let you, reader, gather fruit by reading this, think, if you can, how I could have kept my face dry when I saw our human image so contorted that the tears from their eyes ran down to bathe their ass cracks. First of all, we are clearly being signaled here that the language is crass. It's funny in some really twisted, <laughs> twisted heads on bodies, twisted way. But again, we are being asked to share the emotional space with the writer. This is crucial to Dante's project all the way through Paradiso. Dante is asking his reader to be emotionally engaged with him. And let me say that this is the leading edge of modern literature. I don't mean modernist, like Faulkner and Wolfe and Joyce. I mean modern as in the contemporary way we write from the Renaissance forward. 
from Shakespeare forward, from Spencer forward to Ibsen to Joyce to everybody that you could read now, a writer is expected to draw the reader into an emotional space. I would argue that many writers pre-Dante, it's not that Dante invents this, but pre-his moment do not necessarily want me in their emotional space. In fact, I would argue that St. Augustine does not necessarily want me in his emotional space, even in the confessions. But Dante wants me there. Why? Because Dante is a poet coming out of the troubadour tradition out of Provence, the tradition in which we, the poet and I, share the space of having been disappointed in love. We share an emotional space. We get it. Love is bad. It hurts. It's not ever working out the way we want it to. It's not ever right. Dante comes out of that troubadour tradition So he wants his reader as here with the fortune tellers to share his emotional space. And also part of that emotional space, it's a little vulgar and it's a little funny. Now, listen, it's not funny to laugh at human suffering, but there is a way in which this is gallows humor. Their tears flowing down their backs and then right down the cracks of their butts. I'm supposed to think it's a little bit funny. That's the reader that Dante wants. Fifth address to the reader. It's in Canto 22. It's right toward the back. In fact, it occurs at line 118 of Canto 22. Here we are with the barriters in the pitch. We've got all those demons, butterfly imp and evil claws and badass dog and all those demons ranging about us, trying to rake the flesh off. Well, our pilgrim probably, but certainly the damned too, as if the damned have flesh, but still trying to rake them in some way. They're going to try to get and figure out how to get more of the damned out of the pitch so they can actually torture them all the more. So they make this deal with this Navarrese guy and say, hey, get more out of the pitch. Then they say to him, if you take a dive, I won't just gallop at you. This is what Harlequin says. I'll beat my wings to get over the pitch. Let's pull back from the cliff's edge to conceal ourselves behind the bank, and we'll see if all by yourself you're any match for our might. So go ahead. Call more of the damned out of the pitch. And that's when the poet steps out and gives us one line. Hey, you readers, you're about to hear a whole new game. Again, stretching credulity. Again, sharing an imaginative landscape. And let me speak just a little bit about stretching credulity. After all, the poet says to us, you know, you're about, and of course we are about to hear a whole new game because these poor demons are, (laughs) poor demons, (laughs) love that. These poor demons are about to get tricked by this guy as he dives back into the pitch. And then they're going to end up in the pitch and they're going to end up in a huge fight with each other. You remember the whole story. So we are about to hear a whole new game. Let's talk about that credulity for just a second. Dante is daring to write about the afterlife. If anything, this is the provenance of the church. (laughs) This is where the church gets to talk about the afterlife. This is not supposed to be what you and I talk about. We get to talk about how sin works out here on earth. This is what Augustine wants to talk about in the city of God. We want to talk about how we can build a more civic society, more just society. I mean, this is all our province. To talk about the 
afterlife? To talk about what happens after you're dead? You can't talk about that. That's what the church talks about. So Dante is already walking, poetically, on territory he shouldn't be walking on. Furthermore, he's not even clergy, for gosh sake. He's not St. Thomas Aquinas. He's not supposed to be here. Stretching the credulity is realizing his position in a place where he doesn't belong. This is where churchly orders belong. This is where church fathers belong. This is where patristic writers belong. This is not where a medieval Florentine poet who wrote some love lyrics, this is not where he belongs. The sixth place in which Dante addresses me directly is in Canto 25. It's about a third of the way down the canto at line 46, 47, and 48. This is when Vanni Fucci has given his unbelievably vulgar signal, and the centaur gallops past them down below. Then three spirits come up to them whom neither my guide nor I noticed at first, until they all hollered, who are you guys? So they stopped talking. Virgil and Dante stopped talking. They turned their attention to them. And the poem says, I didn't know who they were, but it came to pass, as it does through sheer coincidence a lot of times, that one of them mentioned the name of another by saying, where in the world did John forget off to? That's why I, to make my guide pay attention, set a finger from my chin to my nose. If, and here comes the direct address to the reader, if, reader, you're hesitant to believe what I'm about to say, it's no cause for surprise, because I, who saw it, can hardly permit myself to believe it. Once again, we're in imaginative landscape, credulity, and what is the stretching of credulity here? Well, this is the pit of metamorphoses. This is the pit of the thieves. This is the pit where the poet says to us, <laughs> Ovid, Lucan, hacks compared to what I can pull off with metamorphoses. We have stretched the credulity theologically, and now the poet is asking for a reader who allows him to stretch credulity poetically. The poet is asking for a very special kind of reader, one who is generous, imaginative, emotional, interpretively active, and willing to allow the poet to push the fence out, to push the fence out theologically and push the fence out poetically beyond Lucan, beyond Ovid, to push it as far as the poet is able to do. Bear with me, the poet seems to be saying, because you know what? I'm going to do this. So stick with me because I can hardly believe I'm about to pull this thing off, but I am about to pull it off. And finally, we come to that last address of the reader that we just passed in Canto 34, in which the poet says he is neither dead nor alive, or the pilgrim says he is neither dead nor alive, but in some median position. He didn't die, but he certainly didn't remain alive. How frozen and faint-hearted I became at that moment. Don't ask me, reader. I can't write it down because every known word would not still be enough. I didn't drop dead, but I certainly didn't remain alive. Think for yourself, if you've got enough imagination, what I'd become both dead and alive at once. This is the longest sustained address to the reader in Inferno. There is one passage that we pass that is equally six lines long, but it's not a sustained address to the reader the way this one is. This is 
asking for emotional and imaginative landscape. It's asking for me to understand him, to have compassion for him, and to understand that he has run out of poetic craft and stick with him. I have reached the limits of what I can do. Stick with me through this as we come through this giant change in the face of Satan at the center of the universe and begin our ascent to the heavens. As far as I'm concerned, this final address to the reader basically says, I have exhausted the way that I can write now I have to find a new way. And if you're a reader with me, you'll stick with me. And we will find a new way to talk, not about the damned, but about the redeemed. Seven direct addresses to the reader. It's such a telling number. It's so important to see them because it gives us an image of what the poet wants out of his readers. And frankly, if you've walked this far with me, You want to be this reader. Well, frankly, if you've walked this far with me, you are this reader. We've gotten here, and we're going to go farther. So stick with me, because we got to walk right up to Satan. No, more than that, we got to grab hold of him. Ah, just you wait. It's coming up in the next episodes of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. Brace yourself, reader. Reader.